the Read to Lead podcast, episode 12. Hey, everybody. This is Jay Baer, president of Convince and Convert and author of the New York Times bestselling business book, Utility. You are listening to my pal, Jeff Brown, on the Read to Lead podcast, where leaders read and readers lead. to find something you love doing regardless of if anyone shows up or claps or cheers or listens. Because otherwise what happens is if I say I only do my thing when there's an audience, I've now given the audience the power to tell me when to stop. Welcome to the Read to Lead podcast with Jeff Brown. Jeff believes that if you desire to achieve true success in business and in life, then consistent and intentional reading is a must. The Read to Lead podcast will not only help you narrow this ever important reading list, but also bring you key insights and valuable feedback from some of today's most successful and inspiring authors. And now here's Jeff. Thanks so much for carving time out of your busy day to check out the Read to Lead podcast. I am Jeff Brown. And this podcast, as you may know by now, is dedicated to one of our passions, and that passion being reading, of course. My goal is to help you develop a more intentional and consistent reading habit, in part because I believe it's essential to your success in both business and in life. Each week, we sit down with another successful and inspiring author, and we talk about their latest book, but also their unique perspectives on things like leadership, personal development, career, business, entrepreneurship, and a lot more. Now, in this episode, you and I will sit down with John Acuff, author of Start, Punch Fear in the Face, Escape Average, and Do Work That Matters. John will help us understand the difference between finding your purpose and living with purpose, how to deal with the voices of doubt, both real and imagined, and punch fear in the face, what it means to play for the size of your heart and not for the size of your audience, and a whole lot more. Before we get to that, I want to share with you about an amazing three days that you can be a part of coming up in just a few weeks, October 10th, 11th, and 12th. I'm talking about the Road Trip Conference happening in Cincinnati, Ohio, something that you, I think, will want to make time for and um, travel to if you don't live in the Cincinnati area. The Road Trip Conference includes Chris Licurdo, Seth Godin, and over 40 other speakers. Each day starts with an inspirational keynote and then breaks out into smaller hands-on workshops. In fact, there are over 84 workshops representing the 14 functional categories of business, things like leadership, finance, technology, social media, branding, and more. Now, this allows you to custom design over these three days a course of seven workshops to help you learn and succeed right now. It's about you and your business and is designed to inspire and empower your business so that you can engage more customers, make more money, and fulfill your dreams and purpose. Now, I've got a special code you can use to get $200 off your registration to the Road Trip Conference, again happening October 10th through the 12th in Cincinnati, Ohio. Just go to readtoleadpodcast.com forward slash road trip. That's readtoleadpodcast.com slash road trip. Then in the promo code box, just enter my name, Jeff Brown, for $200 off your registration. That web address, one more time, is readtoleadpodcast.com slash roadtrip. John Acuff is a popular keynote speaker at events nationwide and the author of the New York Times bestseller, Start, Punch Fear in the Face, Escape Average, and Do Work That Matters. In 2010, he joined Dave Ramsey's team as a full-time speaker and author. John has been a regular guest on CNN.com and on the Fox News Channel and is also the author of Quitter, Gazelles, Baby Steps, and 37 Other Things Dave Ramsey Taught Me About Debt, and Stuff Christians Like. 
His blogs at johnnycuff.com have more than 4 million readers worldwide, and he is our guest today. John, welcome to the Read to Lead podcast. Thanks for having me. Well, we should probably begin with a, a brief explanation as we're going to talk about start of what you lay out in the book is the five stages uh, of life, the five life stages in the first chapter, so we can frame the rest of our conversation. Can you briefly uh, describe each one of those for us? Sure. Well, I kind of looked at it and said, you know, studied and thought, why do some lives turn out well and some lives don't? And what I realized was there's really kind of five stages. And I don't feel like I created them. If anything, I, I labeled them in a different way than maybe somebody else had. So the five stages, and they used to be based on your age, were in your 20s, you go through this time of learning. You don't know who you are, what you're all about. You try a million different things. You move cities and jobs and circles of friends, and that's your 20s. In your 30s, you go through a time of editing. You say, I did these 100 things. These are the 10 that work the best. It's the first time you start to edit your friendships and your relationships, too, where you realize not everybody's going to be a best friend. In your 40s, you go through a time of mastering, where you start to get really good at your career and your relationships go the deepest and you really start to kind of hone in. In your 50s, you go through this time of harvesting where all the decisions you've made start to come home. And in your 60s, it's a time of guiding. We start to lead other people down their own path. And so the good news is it's no longer about your age. Um, It's now no longer about when you're born. It's about when you decided to live. And so you and I have both met 24-year-olds that are already kind of mastering, and we've both met you know, 40-year-olds that are already guiding. And so those are kind of the five stages. And so what I say is that there's two roads on the road to life, one the road to awesome and one the road to average. And so it's about how do you figure out how to stay on that awesome plan. And you say there's no really skipping any of these, but you can shorten them, right? Yeah. I, the reality is you know, nobody accidents their way to mastery. You know, nobody never played chess and then wakes up one day and goes, you know, I feel Russian. Like I'm amazing (laughs) at chess. And, you know, some of the examples I use are folks like Michael Jordan. I mean, he won three NBA championships, um, master level basketball player decides I'm going to play baseball, goes and plays baseball and is horrible. He hits 201, never makes the big leagues. Now he wasn't done as an athlete. I mean, he was still very athletic. He goes back to the NBA, wins three more championships. So he's a great example of, You must learn, you must edit, you must master. You don't get to skip those phases. John, one of my favorite TED Talks is the Sir Ken Robinson TED Talk from 2006 on schools and creativity. Have you seen that one? But me and every other human on the planet. I I figured, I figured. Well, in it, of course, as you know, he talks about as we get older, we seem to lose that creativity we had when we were young. And he argues that it's been educated out of us. And of course, similarly in Start, you say that we used to think of ourselves as kids. You know, we were awesome. We could do anything. You use your own kids as, a, as an example. And we've lost that view of ourselves somewhere along the journey. What do you attribute that to? Uh, is it a combination of things different for everybody? Is it just our messed up educational system? What do you think it is? Yeah, I'd say, I mean, I think Sir Ken Robinson is certainly a better person to speak to the intricacies of the education system. I think that on my on my side of the things, a lot of it has to do with fear. Um, a lot of it has to do with the expectations we inherit. Um, a lot of it has to do with our identity. You know, if we if we think we don't deserve or have what it takes. Um, so I think there's a million little things that chip away at that. I mean, people say it's time to grow up. You know, pick a major that's going to make money. Pick a major that has a lot of jobs available. And so I think every day we get to active, actively choose to go closer to our dream or to back away. 
Why do you think, John, that most of us, in fact, I think you say in start, 99% of us are content with living an average existence? And, and secondarily to that, what opportunities then does that open up for those of us wanting to be, our, uh, be able to put ourselves in that 1%? Well, I think part of it is that we're content to do it because we know how to do it. It's familiar. Um, you don't get criticized for doing it. It's common. You know, I, I never had haters when I was failing um, or when I was being average, you know, but suddenly you, you try to do something, you get some people that don't like that. So I think there's a, you know, and it's a, it's a wide, easy way. The, the truth is you, the only thing you have to do to be average is nothing. <laughs> and so it's, it's easier too. You don't have to swim upstream. Um, you know, but they, I heard somebody say the only fish that float with the stream are the dead ones. <laughs> so I think that's a big part of it. Now, the opportunity is that the, the kind of perception and the reality is so low as far as being awesome. Like right now, culturally speaking, customer service, for example, there's times when you go to a restaurant and you go, that was great. The waitress didn't even yell at us and was like kind. <laughs> and the, the bar on our expectation is so low that even a little bit of hustle really, you know, the average American watches 38.5 hours of TV a week. Mm. You can still watch 20 and you're, you've almost halved that. Imagine what you could do with an extra 18 hours in your week. Uh, you give some examples from your own life, and you talk about this concept of being brutally honest about our, our present circumstances, but you know, to throw caution to the wind and, and, and be wildly unrealistic about our future circumstances. Can you describe for us what that looks like in the real world? Yeah, I think that culture comes along and tells you dreaming is for artists, and everybody should dream, and it's, you know, just go for it. Don't make any plans. Step out in faith. You know, it's kind of like the Pinterest version. If you say it out loud, it'll manifest itself. Like, you know, if you just believe in it enough, if you have enough confidence and drive and sometimes you don't grow wings until you jump off the cliff, you know? And so (laughs) what happens is that people make really bad mistakes. And so what I tell people is be realistic about your current, you know, if you have mortgages and kids and a bunch of other responsibilities, honor those. Don't, don't pretend you don't honor those. Um, and at the same time, do the reverse with your future. Where you dream big, don't dream realistically. What a boring phrase that is. <laughs> have a huge dream. Have a crazy dream. And the combination of those two can be really good. So, you know, an example of that would be if you have a day job, I wouldn't want you to go, I'm dreaming, and I'm dreaming all day, so I'm going to steal time from work. You know, no, what I want you to do is I'm going to be realistic, which means i got to get up half an hour early if I want to work on my stuff. And so that's me, and I'm going to be realistic. There's a lot of books out these days talking about finding your purpose, and I was pleasantly surprised to see you in your book use that phrase, but talk about also the lies we often believe about the process, uh, which I'd never really thought about. I'd like for you to share a bit about what some of those are and why trying to figure out your dream, quote-unquote, doesn't exactly work. Well, I think we put tremendous pressure on ourselves. You know, we go... And it starts in college, really. What do we say to college students? Best four years of your life. You've got to, you know, figure it all out. You've got to have a plan. And so I, I meet hundreds of people that tell me I, I need to have one purpose. And once I know what it is, everything will be perfect and it'll change my whole life. And, you know, I'll know it when I find it. It's kind of this soulmate version of purpose. You know, the whole myth that like there's one person on the planet for you. Mm-hmm. And if you don't find them, then you'll never know true love. And I just don't believe in that. So what I tell people is I'm not a fan of finding your purpose. I'm a fan of living with purpose. You know, sometimes you don't find your purpose until you're in the middle of the adventure. 
And I think that's a great thing. I always tell people purpose is attracted to motion. You can't steer a boat from the shore. So sometimes, you know, the first thing you have to do is to get started and have a little momentum, have a little, you know, forward planning and kind of move some things. And I always, I always tell people, you know, your purpose won't find you on the couch. Um, it's not going to be delivered to your house like a pizza. You've got to get in the marketplace. You've got to dare. You've got to try some things. And, and that, to me, is where purpose starts to come into play. Well, I, for one, have been married twice, so I know there are at least two soulmates out there for most of well, us. Well, there you go. See, we just, <laughs> we just disproved that one almost instantly. Well, when starting something new, all of us, I don't think any of us are exempt of this, uh, deal with the voices in our heads or sometimes, you know, it's real life, face-to-face doubters right in our own family or our backyard that we've allowed into our circle. What are some of the ways you've successfully dealt with those same voices? Yeah, I think the... Part of, part of what I tell people is that I think sometimes we get fear wrong where we feel like we'll be able to forever beat it. And we go, you know, and if we still have some in us, we feel like we've, we've failed at that. And so for me, you know, the, to tell you the truth, I mean, I haven't eliminated fears, um, you know, where I've, I've said, you know, I used to have a fear about such and such, and now I no longer do. So I conquered it. I don't think that's true. I think that, you know, sometimes we'll struggle with a fear for years and years and years. And that's, that's not failure on your part. That's, that's part of being a, an adult and going, yeah, I got, I got this fear and it's been rocking me for a while. And so part of the way I do deal with it though, is that I learn about it and I realize, you know what, fear, I don't have 5 million fears. I have five that like to play dress up. <laughs> and so what do you know, what do I do with that? And so like, once you do that, you can start to see the patterns. You can start to see that, okay, I don't have a million fears. I only have a handful and and what does that mean? And that's the kind of stuff that I, I find really helpful in my own life. So that's helped me over time. But also releasing yourself from that pressure that you've got to figure out and fix and, you know, cure your fear. I just don't think that is something that really happens. And we put that pressure on ourselves and we think we're going to do it. And then you go to a conference or you read a book about fear and you still have it and you think, I've failed. I think that does more damage sometimes than the actual fear itself. Uh, you uh, alluded a moment ago to the idea of you know getting up a little bit earlier and being more productive. Sure. Our mutual friend uh, Andy Traub. Yeah, he's great. Wrote an ebook earlier this year called uh, "Early to Rise," and you even started a group called Five Club that meets once a month at five a.m. That I've been able to attend a couple of times. Why is starting the day early and being selfish first thing so important to our success? In your opinion? Well, a big part of it is that send you out into the rest of the day kind of full. I, I definitely meet people that say to me, John, I'm not a morning person. I'm a night person. You know, my, my 5 a.m. is at 11 p.m. And I'm, I'm okay with that, and we'll talk through that. But scientifically speaking, there's, there's hard research and hard evidence that the morning matters. I mean, they've done a lot of smart studies, smart people, not me, on if you, you have a limited amount of willpower. And it, you know, it, it's expended during the day. So I think especially if you've got something like you want to be an author and you're going to, you know, you're going to work on your book at night, you're less likely to work on it at night than you are during the day. And again, just from a practical standpoint, like it's a, it's a big help that you go to your day job having already checked off that, okay, I, I don't need my day job to be perfect today because I've already done my thing that I want to do and, and I'm happy with that. I mean, I think that talk about something that helps you. So those are part of, you know, that's part of the stuff I like to talk about is I don't think everybody's going to be a morning person. That's by no means, you know, the core idea there. The core idea there is, you know, is there a way for you to do something at night that, you know, is something that 
it's valuable at night, but ultimately I try to lean people towards the morning. I know many of us who are attempting to, to launch any sort of platform often struggle with how big is our audience. And, and, and you talk in the book about playing to the size of, of your heart and not the size of your audience. Can, can you expound on that idea a little bit? Sure, yeah. The challenge there is that the reality is your audience is going to fluctuate. Um, it just is. And I think it's great to be motivated by audience. I mean, I'd be lying if I said, ah, the audience size at the start conference doesn't matter. Like, no, it, it matters. It's exciting to me. I'm glad that there's X amount of people coming. I, I wish it was 10 times the size, but I think the reality is you have to find something you love doing regardless of if anyone shows up or claps or cheers or listens. Because otherwise what happens is if I say I only do my thing when there's an audience, I've now given the audience the power to tell me when to stop essentially. Mm. And I don't, you know, I don't want to do that with, with my goals, with my dreams, with my hopes. So I think you've really got to know why you're doing something. And the audience can be an amazing bonus to why you're doing it, but it shouldn't be the heart of why you're doing it. Because again, when they stop cheering and, and they will, and you know, that's, that's a reality. There's, I'm going to write some books that do better than others. And I, I wish I could tell you right now, like everyone's going to be a New York times bestseller right out of the gate. That's just not how life works. And, mm. If if the audience is the only reason I write books, then you better believe I'm going to stop writing books eventually. <laughs> well, sort of related to that, it, it can be real easy to compare our progress with others. We see someone on a similar path, and I'm very guilty of this, and we immediately want to check ourselves against that. Share with share share why that is such a dangerous trap to fall into. Well, part of the reason is that it's new. You know, sometimes we forget that. The reality is, you know, 20 years ago. 30 years ago, you couldn't go online and, and count the five-star reviews on somebody else's podcast and compare it to how many reviews you have. Mm. But that's changed in our generation. And so it's very easy right now to get online, go on Google, go on Pinterest, go on Instagram, whatever, and find people that are doing better than you and then start to not like what you're doing. And so what I always tell people is never compare your beginning to somebody else's middle. Because it'd be one thing if we were fair when we compared, but we're not. I mean, I talk to businesses that say, yeah, we want our brand and our customer service and everything we do to be as good as Apple's. And I want to say, really? Because Apple has, you know, 20,000 employees globally. You have four. <laughs> like, why, why is your expectation you'll compete with Apple? <laughs> you know, that's, that's insanity. It's like if a Little League team ever said, we just want to be as good as the Yankees. You'd go, well, hey, this is going to be hard for you to hear, but they have like a lot of money um, <laughs> that they they spend on their stuff. And you guys are six. Like, <laughs> this is T-ball. So I, I just, it's as, it's as absurd as that. And if we did it like that, we'd realize it was absurd and we wouldn't do it. But because we never take the time to stop and go, what am I really saying? Because what you're really saying is, yeah, you'll be as good as, as the Yankees. And if you if a six-year-old told you that, you'd be like, that's a dumb six-year-old. <laughs> One story you share in the book is about you know, taking a vacation and unplugging and, and really feeling good about that when you came back. And uh, a friend challenged you and said, well, what about Tuesday? What's that look like? You know, and, and, and In other words, stressing the importance of doing that on a regular basis. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of having your own, what you call, Central Park? Yeah, well, and I think it's a great it was a great point. Yeah, a guy named Ali Andrews challenged me about that, and and his point there was, hey, you know, it's completely awesome. 
for you to have had a good vacation, and I'm glad you did. But I think it's completely silly for you to think, all I have to do is recreate that moment in a normal week. P.S. I don't live at the ocean, you know, and <laughs> and I have meetings to go to, and, and so do you. So I think it's it's not realistic for us to go. I just have to recreate the circumstances that made me feel relaxed, and P.S. They involved the beach. So his point to me was, how do you create some Central Park? And what he meant by that was, if you fly over New York, it looks Central Park looks wasted. I mean, it's green space in the middle of a city, and you start to go, imagine how productive they could be if they use that. You know, imagine what they could do with that space. Like, they're really not making a good use of that space. They should do something different with that. And then you start to realize, though, that they need that space Desperately. That space is why they're able to survive as a city. That space has everything to do with the health of the city. Without that space, they'd go crazy. There's so many people that use that as their reset button, if you will. So what he challenged me to do was don't be so productive that you forget to have some Central Park in your life. Mm. Um, And I thought that was a really neat way to say it, some Central Park, you know. And so that's what I try to do. And I'm not I'm not saying you got to go meditate and, you know, light candles. And I mean, it, it can be pretty practical. It can be as simple as, you know what? I turned off my phone for two hours today. Um, and that was, that was my central park. I think that's, that can be super helpful. John, for you, when it comes to the business of speaking and being an author and, and blogging, what would you say is the single greatest business lesson you've learned along the way? Well, I've thought about that before. Like if I was going to tell somebody how to be a public speaker, what would I tell them? You know, what would be the lessons I'd give them? I think part of it, it's, it's silly and sounds small and doesn't sound, you know, when we think about business lessons, we want them to be complicated and kind of, you know, it's the long lost secret nobody knows. But I, I got to tell you, being nice has really been an eye opener to me. Just learning that people don't like to help people, don't like to help jerks win. <laughs> and the nicer I am with my, you know, what I do in life and how I do it and how I treat people that, you know, sometimes we focus on our craft so much that we forget the little things like just being kind. And so I'd say one of the things I've learned is that. And then the other is that if you want to be good at something, you got to do a lot of reps. It's all about repetitions. Mm-hmm. Well, as someone who's been able to work alongside uh, Dave Ramsey for the last uh, three years, you've obviously had a chance to to learn from uh, one of our generation's great leaders. What would you say is one of the single most important leadership lessons he's been able to, to pass along to you? You know, it's, it's funny. I, I learned from Dave in two ways. I learned from when he tells me something, and I learned from when he shows me something. Hmm. Um, and sometimes the show me stuff is, is more powerful than the tell because it's just me getting to watch and learn hmm. and go, oh, wow, he did this, and I didn't, you know, I didn't think a guy at his level would do that. And, you know, look, you know, look at why he did that. Um, and, and so here's an example. Um, I've seen leaders Dave's size that um, kind of get done with, their audiences. And by that, I mean, they go, Oh, I'm just tired of them. Um, I'm so popular and famous. It's just, they're, they're annoying. They're in the way. And you look at Dave and you, and I mean, the other day he read us something in staff meeting that somebody had written, you know, a a young woman who was, who was just sending a note of appreciation about, Hey, here's something that, you know, you helped me do in my life. That really meant a lot to me. And Dave started tearing up. And again, he's done this for a long time. And so for me as a young guy to see somebody that's still so passionate about the audience and why he got into it is a great reminder of not phoning it in, not getting so used to what you get to do that you're kind of tired of it. 
Because, I mean, the, the truth is, Dave, Dave is not tired of that. He, you know, it's, it's fascinating for me. And so what I've learned from that, kind of the takeaway for me is, I had to sit down and go, why is Dave still into it? <laughs> like, he's got enough money. He doesn't need, he doesn't have to do it. Like, what is still work? Like, why does he still stay connected? And what I've learned and what I think a big part of what makes Dave Ramsey tick is that he's still in contact with real people, with real challenges, with real issues. Mm-hmm. You know, five days a week when you call, you know, three hours a day, he's on the air. When the mom who calls and says, because of your program, you know, I had health and I had a will for my husband and he, he passed away unexpectedly from cancer and, you know, your organization helped me get that in place. Thank you so much that he's stalking those people, you know, and during the, if you come to our office to watch the show during the show, during commercials, he's not hiding somewhere in a corner resting. He's out there shaking hands and interacting. I think that's been one of my biggest lessons is how you, when you have an audience, you don't use your platform as a way to hide from people. You use it as a chance to really continue to relate to people. And Dave, I think, if you look at Dave Ramsey's life, he's made a history of that, and it's it shows in so many different ways. So I'd say that's one that's one of the big things that I feel like I've learned from him is how you stay connected to your core audience, how you stay engaged to your core audience, how you care about your core audience, and you know that's something that, as I look at who he is and who he's helping me become. That matters a lot. I know from my years in, in Christian radio, it, it can be real difficult sometimes to, to fight that complacency that can often set in if you're not engaging daily, like like you said Dave does. That's that's important. Well, it's not an easy thing. I don't. I mean, that's part of why I, I you know, I'm so respectful that he does it. Is that it's not easy. You know, even as a young guy with a small brand, I get that it's not. You know, that's not an easy thing. Can you name for us a couple of books you've read uh, in the last uh, year or two that have had a great impact on you? And why? Sure. I love uh, Order in Your Private World by uh, Gordon MacDonald. Um, it's one of my, I'd say it's one of my top favorite books of all time, um, easily. Um, just a great reminder about the things you need to do to kind of stay focused on what you do and why you do it. Um, I think that's just an awesome book. It's one that I've read. I've probably, you know, I read it recently, and I, it's one I probably read every, every three years or so. So that's one that I, I love to recommend. I, I love, I love, there's, you know, I get something new out of it every time. So that's definitely one. I think, you know, same, same way, uh, War of Art. I love War of Art. Um, that's a book that, you know, still speaks to me, still challenges me. I still find new ideas in it by Stephen Pressfield. Um, I think, uh, I'm trying to think if there's anything else I've read recently. Um, I tend to have a bunch of books going at the same time. So sometimes it's hard to just remember one. Um, but those those two have been, when I look at things and I go, what shaped me? Those would be books that I'd, bo- I'd put on as they shaped me. Well, John, we have uh, a couple of uh, listener questions that have come in from readtoleadpodcast.com. You oh, can awesome. click the uh, send a voicemail button there at the right of the website. The first one is from Eric. Hi, John. This is Eric from downtownlivingwithkids.com. Uh, my question is, how do you keep forward momentum once you've started pursuing your goals or once you're actually uh, working within your passion? Uh, thanks a lot. So forward momentum, John, what would you say to that? Yeah, I think that's a, I mean, first of all, I'd say that's a, that's a great question, just to, uh, just to affirm that question. Um, I think part of it is you try to remember, you always try to stay connected to why you did it in the first place. I think what often happens is we lose sight of why we got involved in something to begin with. And I think that's, 
there's a great danger in that. So I think that that'd be the first thing I'd say is that you remember why you even started doing that. You know, why did you get involved with, uh, I think you said living in the city with kids, mm. like what, you know, what was it about that topic or that desire that made you go, you know what? I see a need here. I see a market. And I think that really helps you stay connected to your audience. I, I once heard somebody say that the, the most dangerous thing is saying yes to the wrong things. We think it's the opposite, but I think that the danger is sometimes you say yes to the wrong thing because it was a good opportunity or it was a good money, and you you walk look up one day and you realize, wow, I'm a long way from why I started doing this. You know, the example I put in start of that is uh, Bill Waterson, um, the guy that created Calvin and Hobbes. Um, he what a what a picture of doing that. He said he turned down millions of dollars in endorsement deals and millions of dollars in kind of licensing deals because he said, you know. When you license your stuff for T-shirts and photos and posters and mugs, it makes you become a businessman. You become mm-hmm. a foreman because you have to manage all these things that people are creating. Mm-hmm. He said, you know what? I didn't get into this to become a foreman. I got into this to be a cartoonist because I have a story to share. So that's what I'd say is that I think a big part of maintaining your momentum is kind of staying on track with this is why I got into it and this is what I'm all about and kind of doing regular Sometimes even weekly temperature checks of, okay, I'm, I'm still in the spot I want to be. I'm still on track with, you know, what I feel called to do. I think that's really important. Got time for one more listener question, John. This one is from May. Hey, Jeff and John. This is May Bohan, and you can find my blog at shadesofmay.wordpress.com or by going to mayboh.com. My question for John is, what do you envision for your next awesome book, and can we pre-order it before it's even finished? Thanks. <laughs> Are you working on that yet? Yeah, and, and it's funny. <laughs> I know May. That's what's so fun oh, about okay. how small small the internet really is. <laughs> yeah, yeah um, I don't have – I'll probably start working on it, to tell you the truth, this summer. I wish I had 100,000 Mays. I'd, I'd be doing pretty well financially <laughs> if I did. But the reality is I'll probably – right now the topic that's really connecting with folks, and you know, you try to – not that you try to have your book be exactly reader-driven, but you try to honor and, and understand and listen to the marketplace and what they're asking for. And the topic that I keep that keeps coming up a lot um, as I travel and speak with people is this idea of fear and what you do with it. And I covered some of that in start, but it might be that I go, you know what? The more I look at it, the more I realize that's a whole book. You know, that's not just a chapter. It's not just a section in a previous book, that's its own book. And what would it look like for me to write a whole book about that? So I think May asked a great question. I hope she <laughs> hope she pre-orders. I wish everybody was asking that question. That'd be a, a good problem to have. Um, but I think right now, that's what I'm looking at is, do I do a book on fear? Um, and if I do, what does that look like? So that's what I'm excited about right now. Well, before we wrap up, um, remind us where we can find you online. Anything else that you might want to share about the book Start or any new projects that you've got coming up that you want us to know about? Yeah, that's great. Um, the, the place to find me online is at johnacuff.com, and that's J-O-N-A-C-U-F-F.com. Uh, it's the same name on Twitter. If you want to find me on Twitter, I'm just J-O-N-A-C-U-F-F. And um, the next big thing we have coming up is I get to go on the road with Dave Ramsey and the Dave Ramsey team and do a lot of fun events with them. And so that's, that's coming up soon too. Um, and those are kind of, that's what I'm working on. That's what I'm excited about right now. Well, John, we are very excited to have had you as a guest. You're one of the inspirations uh, for why uh, this podcast uh, even exists as a matter of fact. So, so thank you very, very much for your time and for sharing your knowledge with us today. 
Certainly. Well, I appreciate the, uh, the good questions and look forward to uh, seeing you down the road. If you enjoyed being a part of today's conversation with John, I hope you'll let him know one way to do that and at the same time help get the word out about the podcast is on Twitter. Again, John's handle, at John Acuff on Twitter. That's J-O-N-A-C-U-F-F. My Twitter handle, by the way, is the Jeff Brown, T-H-E-J-E-F-F-B-R-O-W-N on Twitter. And this episode is 12. So read to leadpodcast.com forward slash zero one two. If you want to share a link to today's episode, that's also where you'll find the show notes and all the resources we talked about. You can leave a comment there as well. Again, that's read to leadpodcast.com slash zero one two for episode 12. Reviews and ratings in iTunes are critically important at this time. If you haven't left one yet, I'd like to ask you to do that. Just like folks like Reviewixer, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, with a five-star rating. And also Dan Caldwell leaving a five-star rating as well. Thank you for the kind things you had to say, Dan. These reviews and ratings are especially important right now because... Our honeymoon is over. We're no longer eligible for new and noteworthy, so we're not getting that attention by default. So anything you can do to help spread the word about the Read to Lead podcast is very much appreciated. One way to do that is by leaving a rating or review in iTunes just by going to readtoleadpodcast.com slash iTunes and share it with your friends, colleagues, and coworkers too as well. Don't forget about the Road Trip Conference happening October 10th through the 12th in Cincinnati, Ohio, and that $200 discount you're eligible for just by listening to the Read to Lead podcast. Simply go to readtoleadpodcast.com slash road trip for more information and put my name, Jeff Brown, in the promo code box for $200 off. Well, next time on the podcast, we welcome Lisa B. Marshall, host of her very own podcast, The Public Speaker, and author of the book Smart Talk, The Public Speaker's Guide to Success in Every Situation. That'll do it for this week. I look forward to seeing you next time on the Read to Lead podcast. Thanks so much for listening to the Read to Lead podcast. As a subscriber, we challenge you to be more than just a passive listener. Become a vital member of the community. Visit us on the web at readtoleadpodcast.com and chat with other members at facebook.com slash readtoleadnation. Until next time, remember, leaders read and readers lead. Zippity doo da zippity yay. My oh my, what a wonderful day. Plenty of sunshine heading my way. Zippity doo da zippity yay, Mr. Bluebird on my shoulder.